Uh, so there will be 23 of the 24 of us in our family uh, together uh, this week. So for us, it's, uh, it's going to be a very unique experience. Uh, in the process of organizing this, the, the kids began to send group texts to one another. Uh, and it's always humorous for me to see the fight over signature dishes. Um, but everyone kind of brings their own um, signature dish to the, to the table. And I suspect for many of you, if not this Thanksgiving, in many other Thanksgivings, there's always this problem that there is more food than there is the capability of digesting. Uh, and uh, if, uh, if I've learned anything from Kathy in the food department area, it's that good food is meant to be savored. So I'm going to talk to you today about savoring things as opposed to just devouring things. And I'm going to use a metaphor for just a moment and switch it to say, imagine that you're feasting on God. Just imagine the idea of feasting on God. How many dishes would you bring uh, to the table? Would the table, would there not be enough room on the table as we've experienced at times in Thanksgiving with so many different things to think about when it comes to God? Now, this should be pretty obvious to those of you who have been a believer for any length of time that in the USA, Thanksgiving is an annual feast. In the kingdom of God, it's a daily feast. Uh, and interestingly, it's a very young celebration. Uh, we were a hundred years as a country before we even did Thanksgiving. Uh, but uh, for a believer, this should just be part of who you are. And, and some of you know that when we started the book of Philippians, uh, we, we went around and looked at some of the other letters in the New Testament, and it's amazing how almost all of these letters from Paul start off with him thanking the Lord for something. And so Thanksgiving should just be a part of our rhythm, part of our DNA of who we are. So I want you to just think for a moment this morning, how could our lives be richer in just normal Thanksgiving if we savored God instead of, ha instead of having a sort of grab-and-go God? Uh, what would it be like if we really just savored God, really stopped and just took him, you know, uh, one little bite uh, at a time? How could our relationship with God be deeper if our thanksgiving was rooted more in who God is than in what God gives to us? So as we think of this idea today, I just want to concentrate a little bit on, <clears throat> on getting this clicker to work, and there we go, there we go, come on, there we go, thank you, huh? Is your clicker on? Um, you know what, it helps if you turn it on. Wow, that is really a pathetic excuse, sorry about that. And good call, Josh, good call. Yeah, <clears throat> it really helps if you actually turn your phone on in order to get calls. Um, but the art of digesting the wonder of God is really what I want us to um, think through this morning. And maybe if any, do you know what I'm, when I use this illustration, do you all know what a dove chocolate is? That <clears throat> those little kind that are wrapped in foil. It would look a little weird if someone was popping those like pills. Uh, and really they're, you can chew them, but they're meant to melt in your mouth. And so what I want you to do today is just think about what, it, what would it like to be in God's presence and allow him to melt in your mouth instead of just having a grab-and-go God? So turn in your Bibles. We're going to look at two passages briefly today. One is Isaiah chapter 40. 
Some of that passage is in your bulletin. So if you don't have a Bible, you can use that. And then we'll look at one other passage today. And uh, if you're able, if you're not, that's fine. But I'm going to read just a small section of Isaiah 40, if you would stand, if you're able, in honor of God's word. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Tell her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed." All flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And may the Lord give his blessing to this word. You may be seated. It's always good if you're not familiar with a movie and someone's watching it and they step into the room and you push pause and say, let me, give, let me catch you up. So that's what we have to do here. We're in the middle of a movie called Isaiah. Uh, and we're really at the apex, the key turning point of this movie, so to speak, this book, written some 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene. And uh, the Jews, the nation of Israel, has been at drift from God for many, many generations. Uh, In fact, you can read a graphic description of it. It's really uh, not rated for children's ears in chapter one. That's how far they have drifted. Uh, Then when you get to um, chapter 40, he Everything begins to turn after these 39 chapters of indictment. There is a str- there's a small group of people in the, among the whole nation of Jews that still believe, they still cling to the old promises given thousands of years before to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're still clinging to them. And yet, it's been so long since God seems to have moved, since God seems to have done anything. And they're beginning to act as though God has forgotten they're struggling to even believe in him, God. Even this small remnant of people who've been hanging on for all these generations. And so essentially God says this, the problem isn't that I have forgotten you. The problem is you have forgotten who I am. 
And he reminds him not of what, so much what he's going to do, he reminds him of who he is. And in these first 11 verses of, of chapter 40, maybe the way I would sort of summarize it is, here is this frighteningly holy, massive, authoritative God who gets on his knees and gently embraces these weak believers like his dear children. And he says, it's all over now. It's safe. It's what they've been needing to hear, this reminder of who he is because about what he's about to do. And right in the middle of it, the centerpiece of these 11 verses that I read is verses 6 through 8. All flesh is grass. And then it gets repeated again and again in different ways. It's as though he's saying, look, I know all of life seems fragile. And it is. It is. There's absolutely nothing in this world that is nailed down, even though we live every moment of our day as though it is. And then when it starts to fall apart, we begin to wonder if God is who he says he is. And he says, I want you to understand something foundational. All of life is fragile. The only thing you can count on is the word of God. The promises out of my mouth that stand forever and cannot be undone. There's no undoing once God has spoken. When God said, let there be light, light didn't say, I don't know. It, couldn't, it could not not be. Because the one of all authority spoke the word, and it had to be. And so he's reminding them again of who he is. And so then in 12 through 24, which we're going to look at a little closer today, uh, it's as though God gently turns the face of this group of believers. It's like he takes their face in his hand, he turns it and says, look at me. Look at me. Look away from everything that scares you. Look away from everything you can't fix. Look away from everything that is yucky and evil and it seems to be winning forever. Look at me. Savor me. And then he begins to tell them some things they've heard all their life about him, but they need to be reminded of again and again. Verse 12, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? God is unbounded by creation. Everything in these verses is a reminder of, yes, you're bounded, I am not. I'm not restrained, I'm not limited by anything. I'm not within creation, I'm actually outside of creation. Creation doesn't control me like it controls you, I control all of creation. Uh, he's, he's the God who is not measured by creation. We would say this, he is a God who can't be measured. He is the unmeasurable God compared to all other gods, which by the way, are very measurable. And that's why it, go, it goes right into verse 13 with that thought. For that matter, who, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Who could come up and counsel God? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice or knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? 
just savor the idea that God is unbounded by ignorance and you are bounded by ignorance. Every one of us in this room is not as smart as we think we are. <laughs> We're not as wise as we think. And I love the idea here of instead, normally, traditionally, you would call this God's omniscience. He's all-knowing. But I think that word's losing its content in the English language because today we think of knowing as remembering a ton of data. We already have too much data to remember anyway. But God's, God doesn't just know everything. He knows what to do with everything he knows. He's wise. Our wisdom is always changing. In fact, if it's not, you're not very wise. Um, <clears throat> then it goes on, 15 through 17. Behold the nations, they're like a drop from a bucket. They, by the way, Israel was quite terrified by the nations. They are counted as dust on the scales. He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not be enough fuel with all its gorgeous cedars, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. God is unbounded by the powers that frighten us. That's the idea here. He's, it's not just that God is all-powerful. It's that all power... All power belongs to God. There's no one who has power outside of God. Think about that for just a moment. There's no one who has evil power outside of God. Even that power is under God's power. There's no power but His power, which then brings us to this somewhat disturbing conclusion. There is nothing that touches our life without God's permission. There is nothing that touches our life without God's permission. And then in 18 through 24, so whom, to whom will you liken God? What will you compare him with? An idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold, puts silver chains around it. And if you're too poor for an offering, you can choose wood that will not rot. I'm guessing that would be cedar if I'm working with wood and I'm thinking, well, never mind. Um, he seeks out a skillful craftsman. He sets up an idol that will not move. Now, there's a certain mockery going on here in this verse. But don't assume you're different than the people who make wood, idols out of wood. I mean, after all. People don't actually worship the wood. They don't actually worship the physical idol. It represents something. It represents a man-made God that they worship. And the point of this is that the gods are man-made, not the God who has declared himself to be who he is. 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? And have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It's he who sits above the circle of the earth its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. All of this is just talking about how God is unbounded by time. And perhaps one of the most uh, 
hardest things to describe about God is that he's self-existent, which simply means that he, well, it's not simple. Let me just give you some ideas. It means that he's uncreated. Everything else in the world is created. It means that he's eternal. Everything else in the world is temporal. We're only eternal because God created us to be eternal. Uh, He's the only being, the Father, Son, and Spirit, who's never had a beginning, never will have an end. That's why this is difficult to, to think about. And get this, it means that you don't have to believe in God for God to be real. God is real whether people believe in him or not. In fact, according to this, God is real and everything else is like a grasshopper in comparison. Our very existence, you're here today for only one reason. Because God has willed for you to continue to be able to breathe and be here. That's the only reason ultimately that you are here. The only reason you exist from day to day. So, hold on to all this. That's one passage. Let's look at one other briefly, James chapter 1. All the way on the other end of the Bible, practically. Just a few verses in James, and then we're going to do a little savoring. James 1, verse 12 through 18. And here's, uh, here's our outline of it. So we're going to see in 12 through 15, I'm going to read that just without any comment, that basically... Trials that come into our lives, those trials can produce, and some of you mentioned trials in our Thanksgiving time, those trials can produce fruit, and those same trials can also produce temptations. Okay, that's what he says in 12 through 15. Blessed is the man and woman who remain steadfast under trial, for when they have stood the test, They will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. There's the fruit. Now let no one say when he's tempted, when the trial turns into a temptation, I'm being tempted by God. Because even though God's ultimately behind the trial, he's not behind uh, the temptation. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire That desire then conceives, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So, that's the the idea in 12 through 15, where I want us to concentrate is really what that sets up in 16 through 18. Don't be deceived. Don't be tricked by this. This is what happens when it's hard to follow Jesus. This is what happens when it's hard to live in this world. This is what it happens when it seems there's a disconnect between what God is saying to us and what we are experiencing in the world. That In that hard space, trials exist. And in the midst of trials, it's easy to forget that we're the bounded one and God is the unbounded one. Our imagination shrinks. All we see is circumstances. And we're like, uh, we're ricocheting all over the pinball machine. And so James comes in and says, let me remind you of who he is. And let let me remind you of what that means for you. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Or another translation, my thoroughly loved children. I know it doesn't seem like you're being thoroughly loved right now. 
But remember this, verse 17, every good and every perfect gift is coming down from the Father of lights, who is unbounded. There's, he's not constantly changing his mind. He's not being thrown around like you are in every other God. He's a God who does not change. He's the Father who spoke light into existence. He's the source of only good and perfect gifts and nothing else. And by the way, he's not only that, verse 18, he's your creator and he's your recreator. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Just remember, even as you think God's tempting you, God's the one who gave you new life, a new life you were never even seeking. So what do we do with these? And we just did a super fast flyover of some verses that demand a whole lot more hovering. But I want you to think right now, rather than sitting down at the Thanksgiving table, being there for two seconds, grabbing your drumstick and running over to the TV, just settle for a moment, slow down, savor God, and let these truths melt in your mouth for a moment. While I tell you what was melting in my mouth as I thought about these, before that, I'll just tell you this. Remember a few weeks ago, I told you about my fierce moment of temptation hovering over a pumpkin cheesecake, and it took all the strength in the world to literally, like a cat with claws on a couch, to pull me away from there. Uh, and then I, you know, I woke up the next morning grateful that I escaped that near-death experience. Well, I bought the cheesecake, just want you to know. Um, <laughs> some things you can only resist for so long. However, I bought it under a strict rule that we were going to have to share half of it with others, which we did. But the remaining half... I learned something really important here. You do not take a full bite on the fork of that cheesecake. You take what seems like just the smallest sliver, and then you just let it sit there. It's amazing how long one piece will last that way, and how much more you'll enjoy it. Such is even more the case with God. Even more the case with God. So, here's one thing I get from Isaiah 40 as I savor that. God needs nothing from us. Yet he wants us. Just, just savor that for a moment. Think about it. Let me help, let me help you out with a guy named A.W. Pink. God needs nothing from us. There was a time, says Pink, when there was no heaven, no earth to engage his attention. There were no angels. There was a time when there were no angels to sing God's praises. There was no universe to be upheld by his power. There was nothing, no one, but God. And that not for a day or an age, but from everlasting and everlasting. God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied in need of absolutely nothing. The creating of human beings, angels, and the universe added nothing to God, essentially. God was under no obligation or necessity to create. That he chose to do so was purely a sovereign act on his part, caused by nothing outside of himself, determined by nothing but his own good pleasure. We exist because God wanted to share what he had.
He did not need us, and yet he wants us beyond comprehension. Now think about it. I believe this is true of me. It may not be true of you. But I want people because I need something from them. God wants us that he doesn't need anything from us. And not only that, God not only wants me, he wants and intends for me and for all who belong to him to enjoy the richest, wildest experience any being can ever experience, and that is God himself. Someone already said it, I think, in the thank you part. I think it was you, Paul. Uh, Someday we will be in such a world. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming, like the old preacher said. So that's one thing. Here's another thing to savor. All that we have, we owe to God, and yet God owes us nothing. I think this is where we get in trouble. We reverse it. Because we think God owes us certain things, it doesn't seem like we get much from God. All that we have, we owe to God. And yet God actually owes us nothing. None of us deserve to be saved from damnation. None of us deserve to be saved from damnation. None of us deserve a country where we can prosper. All that we have, we owe to God. If you're financially independent, if you're successful, if your family is doing pretty well, if you have relationships, all of those things, and you can keep putting bullet point after bullet point on that thank you list, you understand that's not because of you. That's not because you figured out the formula of success. It's not because you're disciplined. It's not because you're responsible. Yes, God works through those means sometimes, but not predictably. All that we have, we owe to God, and God for his own glory and our good could take it all away in a moment. And this is what helps when he does. Everything we truly need comes from God. Oh, there's a whole lot of things I don't get from God. And it takes me a long time to realize that those are not needs, they're just wants. Everything we truly need comes from God. And then this is the better part of that. Everything from God to us can only be good and perfect or produce through what we never want and which this world is never meant to have had what is good and perfect. The very things that are terrible in this world that God himself says are terrible, he is such a great God that even through those things he can produce good and perfect. I suspect for most of you, this is all rehearsal, right? But here's where I think there's some savoring as I just think of these truths I put up there. Have you ever felt overwhelmed, even just with simple things? I was just telling Kathy this morning that I do. Uh, I went downstairs to get my sermon notes, and while I was down there, two things uh, popped up into my head. I came back upstairs, no sermon notes. Went back downstairs again to get it. One more thing popped in my head, and I started to go back upstairs again. No sermon notes. I finally got them. That's why they're here. Uh, and if we'd be done by now if I had just stayed up the stairs. But, um, but when you feel overwhelmed or you're just exhausted from keeping up or living up, here's a thought. I wonder if we're playing God rather than finding God. 
I wonder if we're playing God rather than finding God. I wonder if we're acting as though we're all-knowing or all-powerful or all-in-control instead of recognizing we're not, instead of pretending to be God, what would it be like if we lived our life trying to find God in those situations? So here's what I want us to do for just a minute before we begin the process, which will be a little unique today, of taking bread and cup together. I want you to just practice for a moment, whether it's silent or at your tables, I don't really care. Um, and here's, the, here's maybe the way to get at this idea of savoring. If you could, for, don't think about the right answer. I'm going, to propose, I'm going to pose a question to you. Don't think of the right spiritual answer. Think of what your gut says right away. For some of you, it's the right spiritual answer, okay? But if you could push a button right now and get anything you wanted, just anything, it could be super small, it could be massive, just the first thing that comes into your mind, I wonder what that would be. And you don't have to tell me out loud, that's rhetorical. But uh, then how is the promise in the gospel better than the first thing that just came to your mind? Do you follow what I'm saying? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? It might be just, man, I'd love to get a better car. Uh, you know, or it could be something a little more profound than that. But what if, what if instead of that, there was some promise in the gospel that was better than getting that button that you pushed? So as a way of preparing to take bread and cup, I'm going to give you a couple minutes. Would you think on that? And then I'm going to explain to you how we're going to do communion today. Okay, let me give you a little instructions here for how we're going to take bread and cup today and how we're going to enjoy the body and blood of Christ and feast on him quite literally, as it were. Uh, think of this like that moment when you've gotten the whole family together. Maybe you said, what are you thankful for? And now you, now you get up and you go get the food and you bring it to the table. It's a little bit of chaos. It's okay. Uh, so you have bread at your table, all of you there, and we're going to break that bread up. Uh, and if you're at the table, by the way, and you just don't want to participate in communion, that's okay. You can just pass it on to someone else. Some of those uh, tables have the trays with the little uh, uh, glass of juice there. Uh, so some other tables don't have it. So the table that has it needs to be responsible for making sure the other tables around them uh, get it. So it's just kind of a family meal where uh, we're going to take a moment. Everybody's going to get what they need, and then I'll lead us. I'm going to say a few more things, and I'll lead us in taking communion together. One other thing you can do during the midst of this chaos, this wonderful, glorious chaos, just to be, I'm using that in a holy chaos sense of the term, uh, you can take your uh, little thank you notes that you've written or given to someone else and bring them up, and literally they can be a thank offering that you can leave up here in this basket. And if you want to do it later, that's fine too, but... Um, uh, let me give you a few moments, get, your com get communion out, and then I'll lead us. And here's the question we're going to be looking at in a moment. 
So let me, uh, let me do a little reflecting here before we take the bread and cup just a, a couple minutes. Um, uh, as we think about how our new life is better than this life. And not only our new life as in the life we'll experience after we um, are with Jesus after we die, but even now already, you know. So uh, I think of how Jesus' active for me presence is, that ensures that grace is ultimately going to overrule the sin that keeps dogging my trail. You know, do you ever feel like you're just not winning in the battle against sin? Part of that is because your understanding of sin is growing at the same time that you're fighting it. But Jesus' for you presence is better than, it's much better than me trying to live under this defeated pressure of trying to fight sin all on my own. It's also better than trying to get victory over the sin so, I, so that I feel better about myself or that Jesus would feel better about myself. That's one of the many treasures that it, it belongs to us that's, be, that's better than idea. Or think about it like this. The, the promise that the Father's always listening, always responding, always giving me what's good and perfect, even if I don't even recognize it, is better than, it's one of the promises of the gospel, it's better than anything that I lose in this life that I think I can't live without. Think about all the things that uh, we have in Christ, the characteristics of Christ, the controlling presence of Christ, a future that will never disappoint us. Those things are better than anything else uh, I need to go my way our, our, uh, our, our prayers to be answered in a way. So that's what I mean about how, do, how, do we, how, do, how is the gospel better than this life? So let me just encourage you maybe as a Thanksgiving practice this week that you just sort of pull over and breathe. And a verse that you may never have thought of as one of your favorites, it's in Luke chapter 5, and it basically says, practice holy rudeness. And you're thinking, no, it doesn't. Yeah, it really does. Jesus gets up in the midst of all this responsibility, people wanting to be healed, and he walks away to go savor the Father. So let me encourage you to run wild this week. Shut off your screens and speakers for about five to ten minutes and try to see God. Try to actually see God without any aids at all, to sense his presence. What's true about him right now? what's always true about him. And so it might just be a favorite anchor verse that you would preach to yourself out loud. But let me just encourage you to savor the Lord as part of your Thanksgiving week. So let's take this now, this bread and this cup. And let's eat and drink this knowing that the, the scriptures tell us, oh, taste and see, not just know it in your head, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's do that now.
Did I hear that rumor? Someone said, what it, we should have savored it longer? No. So as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes in glory. And all God's people said...